So the question I want to start with today is, have you ever contacted someone to complain about something? Have you ever called or emailed or just talked to someone, you know, your cell phone company, utility, you know, uh, Facebook, Amazon, Google, server in a restaurant, you know, sent food back, a worker at a business, because it just wasn't the way that you liked it. It wasn't what you expected. Now, if you have, I wouldn't be surprised because complaining is a part of our culture. We're trained to complain. We are trained to find flaws in things and then to tell people about them. Our devices, restaurants, services, products, people, churches, families. In fact, one of the uh, best compliments we could give something right, is like, I have no complaints. Like there's nothing I can, I can nitpick. There's nothing I don't like about it. Somehow in 2020, that has become like we've come so far in the advancement of our things that that's one of the highest compliments we can give. It's just I have nothing bad to say. In fact, our culture celebrates and rewards complaining. More often than not, when you complain about something, you are rewarded for it. This is actually you know, statistically proven. Like when you complain about a meal, when you give a one-star rating on, you know, the, the app store or on Amazon or whatever, these, these tend to elicit from companies certain favors or certain gifts. Like that's how you actually get things. You're rewarded. You know, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Like that actually is true it bears out in society because when we complain about things, we tend to get more attention. We're, we're, we're rewarded for, for talking about it. And couple that with the fact that social media has given us the ability to document and share any even relatively unpleasant experience. If anything, is even just a little bit, not exactly what you wanted, right? You can tell so many people at once immediately. It's at your fingertips. The fact that we can do that and then we are rewarded for it, of course, we're going to do it. That's the culture. We're trained as customers, critical customers. And in fact, we're, we're pretty good at it, right? Uh, we expect the hottest of hot food, you know, the coldest of cold drinks, the the coolest of AC, the cleanest of, you know, tables and chairs and silverware, like the, the friendliest of service. If we don't get those things, we are not only going to notice it, we are not only going to pick at it, but we are going to tell people about it. And not only do we do that in restaurants and businesses, we actually do it in our homes. We do it in our workplaces. We do it with our friends. We do it at church. The customer's always right, they say. I thought about that, and I was like, wow, whoever came up with that, I don't know who did, but they didn't know what kind of monster they were creating when they coined that phrase. Complaining is an essential part of the culture we live in. The question is, should complaining be a part of the culture we strive to create? that we want to live in. 
So spoiler alert, the answer is no. <laughs> it should not be a part of the culture we want. And so what we'll be looking at, since that question was answered rather quickly, uh, the questions we will be looking at is, what is it about complaining that is so damaging to the church and to its people and to the gospel? And how can we step out of that? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 14 here. Philippians chapter 2 in verse 14, and we'll read 14 to 18. And this is God's word. And it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, I know, you know, the previous section, if you've been with us, we've been in a series in Philippians uh, talking about what it means, what it looks like to be able to declare, to say, and to live the statement, to live as Christ which is kind of Paul's, Paul's statement, you know, in Philippians 1.21, and it's just this great uh, statement of faith that he has, that he lives by, and we see that playing out through the various parts of, of this letter. And if you remember in the previous section, we looked at that whole section about humble servanthood and how we should strive for that and how uh, Jesus set that example in his own life. I remember there were all those kind of grammatical connectors. There were all the, the fours and the therefores, you know, pointing back and pointing back and pointing back. And after all of that, you know, last week we looked at, uh, you know, work out your salvation, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and what that meant, pointing back to how we should have this uh, sustained, you know, this continuous effort to be in light of what God is doing in us to strive to be humble servants like Christ. Now, Paul is opening kind of a new section here. There's no grammatical connector if you look here to the previous section. So in light of all that he said, he finally has this kind of practical application. Right? How do you do that? How do you step into that? And he says, the first thing he says here is, do all things without grumbling or disputing. There's his imperative. He's saying, in light of all that, in light of what Christ has done, you know, in light of the bigger picture of trying to strive to be a humble servant and this idea of having the continuous, sustained effort in that, what is the first thing that Paul says to actually do? Like practical application. He says, do everything without complaining, grumbling. Grumbling, really, the, the word in the Greek, it references kind of this muttering or murmuring. You know, it's like, I don't want to do, you know, like that kind of thing, right? Like that's, that's and it's essentially, it is complaining. It is expressing discontent about a situation or about something happening and disputing. And what exactly disputing means, we'll get into a little bit later, related, though, to grumbling, complaining, now, why would he do, why is that the first thing that he talks about? Right? I think when we think about complaining, it seems to be one of the lesser sins. 
right? One of the not as not as bad things. I mean, there's like murder, you know, there's adultery, right? There's this kind of this hatred and this like there are a lot worse things than complaining. Why is complaining the first thing that Paul wants to talk about here? Now, there are some clues. Okay, he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, that exact phrase is used in Scripture. If you look back at Deuteronomy 32.5, this is Deuteronomy 32.5. It says, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Right? Now, that is in reference to God's people, Israel. This particular generation, this is really Moses' generation, right? After they come out of slavery in Egypt, right? After the ten plagues, after the parting of the Red Sea, all that stuff, right? This generation, eventually, God refers to them as a crooked and twisted generation, So interesting because he's saying complaining is characteristic of a crooked and twisted generation. In Paul's time, it was the the world around him, the contemporary culture that he was a part of. And then in Moses' time, it was actually the nation of Israel that was this quick, crooked and twisted generation. What made them like this? Okay, let's look at Exodus 16. This is what this generation was characterized by. They set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So just, that's about 45 days, right? So this is about 45 days after they've been delivered from slavery. Verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So question, how long does it take to get over the joy of being freed from the oppression of slavery? Well, for this generation, it took about 45 days. It took about 45 days from being delivered from slavery, from salvation from slavery for the people of Israel to want to go back into slavery. To misremember what happened for them to say, oh gosh, God, why did you bring us out here into this wilderness? Would that we have, we would have died. It would have been better if we had died at the hands, you know, in Egypt where we sat by meat pots and we ate bread to the full into slavery. The Egyptians murdered Jewish babies because they thought that they were growing too large. The nation was growing too large. I mean, these Jews are the ones being oppressed by a nation for hundreds of years. And they're like, oh, man, I wish we could go back into that. Now, is that really how it was? Was Egypt, Egypt, you know, just so wealthy that this is actually the way that they were living? Well, let's see. Let's go back, right? Let's see if they're remembering correctly. This is Exodus 2, Exodus 2, 23. During... 
those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Okay, does this sound like a people that was just chilling? Like they were just having a great time living in posh, you know, living a posh life, sitting by the meat pot, eating bread to the full? No. Right? I mean, it's, it's just not. Like recently I, I read this article about how uh, the Prince of Egypt, you know, the animated film, The Prince of Egypt from like, when is that from like 1998 or something like that like th- that how that film was like really underrated right and i read this article and i was like oh wow you know i i kind of forgot <laughs> this movie and so i actually watched it it's like it's like on hulu so i watched it and i was like oh wow you know this movie is great right and and the beginning they sing this song it's deliver us and they're like they're like doing all the, the you know they're they're in slavery they're being whipped and forced to work oppressively, and they're singing this, like, deliver us, you know, like, to God. They're singing this song to God, and then by the end of the movie, it's a great movie. You guys should, you guys should watch it. It's a great movie. But at the end of the, I was, like, getting emotional at the end, you know, because the Red Sea parts, they cross the Red Sea. The end of the movie, there's the song of Miriam, and this is, you know, when you believe, right? That's the song in the movie, and they're singing this song and all the kids are like running and everyone's rejoicing, right? Because they're leaving. They're, they're, they're freed from the oppression of slavery. Now, sadly, if there was a Prince of Egypt part two, it would just be the people complaining over and over and over again. After the song of Miriam, after they're happy to be freed from slavery, then they're like, God, where's the food? God, where's the water? God, where's the meat? I'm sick of manna. God, the Canaanites are too big. We're not going to be able to defeat them. Over and over and over again. What's Paul saying here? He's he's saying a few things, but here's one of them. Beware the danger of complaining. Beware. Right, like you've heard of cancel culture and call-out culture, right? Well, church, beware the danger of complaint culture. What did complaining and grumbling do to this generation? This generation that is referenced in Deuteronomy 32.5, this generation that is called crooked and twisted by the end of it, at the end of the day when all is said and done, So here's a question. Can you complain your way out of God's promises? Well, let's look at Numbers 14. Okay. Numbers 14, 27. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. That's a lot of grumbles, right, in like a sentence, in like two sentences, right? It seems repetitive. It seems a little bit redundant. 
Say to them, as, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. There's another grumble right there. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Can you complain your way out of God's promises? Well, this generation literally did that. They just complained their way out of the promised land. They grumbled so much that God was like, forget it. You guys are all going to just die in the wilderness except the two guys who refused to complain. The two guys who actually trusted in me. Habitual complaining actually changes your brain chemistry. Or I should say it wires it in a certain way. Neurological and psychological studies have actually shown this. It, there's, there are some damaging things that it does. It shrinks your ability to think critically because you're so focused and fixated on the negative things. It restricts growth. Right? In, in the long term, it kills vision and optimism, you know, long-term goals. Even the world recognizes that. Puts you on this kind of negative feedback loop. Uh, one author described it this way, complaining, like habitual complaining. Well, he said this. He said, you know, if you woke up in the morning and you stubbed your toe, you would say, ouch. Right? But habitual complaining is like an ouch searching for an injury. It puts you in a state of mind where you are constantly even if nothing is necessarily wrong, it makes you think about even things that could potentially go wrong. It puts you in that state of mind. You're so fixated on the negative. That's what, that's what kind of Israel did, right? No matter what God did, they kept thinking about the next problem. I mean, God literally drops the, the plagues to deliver them from Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. And not 45, you know, 45-ish days later, they're just like, ah, well, now we have a new problem. Well, now we have another new problem. Well, now we have another new problem. Gosh, God. Beware the danger of complaint culture. Now, the second thing Paul says in this passage is rejecting complaint culture makes you a light it makes you shine like a light. So in the midst of that crooked and twisted generation, which is, which is characterized by this grumbling and disputing, if you don't do that, you become a light. You shine as a light. Now, how does doing all things without complaining or disputing make you a light? So to give us some insight into that, let's look at Matthew 5. Right, this is Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. 
A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's keep it up for a second. Now, how does, now think about this, okay? How do these things relate? If you look in verse 11, it says, you're blessed when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil. And so when people talk trash about you, essentially, right, when people insult you, when people look down on you, when people persecute you falsely on my account because you are a follower of Jesus, verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Now that seems weird. And then he gets into this salt and light passage. And if you look at the end, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others, they may see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven. Now, if, the, if, if it's just talking about good works in general, like if it's talking about loving the poor, how does that give glory to God? Does everybody who loves the poor give glory to God? Does every, like when you see anybody who loves the poor or who is helping the poor or who is doing something you know, which is kind of universally seen as good in society, do people look at that and then say, wow, let's give glory to God? No, right? Like, no. Not every time somebody does anything that is considered to be a good work do people give glory to God. However, when you are being persecuted for your belief, yet doing good work, And yet, your response is not to revile back, to insult back, to be snarky back, right? To be sarcastic back. When your response is not, I'm going to do, I'm going to operate the same way the world operates. Like when people revile me, when people, uh, you know, mistreat me, I'm going to complain about it just like what is the culture of the world. Like when you say, well, I'm not going to do that. In fact, what I'm going to do is the opposite. I'm going to rejoice and be glad because I know that my reward is not from that person thinking that I'm a good person. My reward is that even if I'm reviled for my belief while being praised for the good work, that people will be able to see something is weird about that. Like if I'm able to take that reviling without complaining and in fact with rejoicing and with joy because my reward's not here, then that does point to kind of a category that doesn't exist in this world. Like, why why are they able to do that? How are they able to do that? That does point to glory to somewhere else. Not to me, because I'm such a good person, but to something else must be going on. There must be something to that belief. Is it possible to stand out and shine by refraining from doing something. Look at this picture. This is one of my favorite pictures, right? Hey, do you notice anything about this picture? I'll give you a second, right? Yeah, you see it, right? It's just like clear as day there. Everybody in this picture is on their phone. Every single person in this picture, you can zoom in, you can check everybody. 
They're trying to get a picture. This was the premiere of Black Mass. <laughs> if any of you guys remember that, mo- I didn't. <laughs> it's a Johnny Depp film. It's like a Boston, one of those Boston movies, you know. But like, uh, <laughs> so that's this. That's this movie, and everybody's so desperate to get a picture of Johnny Depp, who is arriving at the premiere of Black Mass, that nobody cannot look at their phone. But there's one person not looking at their phone, right? She's right there. She's taking it in. She's taking in the moment. This picture, this lady's not even doing anything. <laughs> She's not doing something. And her not doing of something is so, it stands out. It shines like a light in a world, in a dark world of iPhones. <laughs> like she is the one shining bright light of I don't need my phone. Can you stand out? Can you shine by refraining from doing something that is ubiquitous? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Now, if the culture celebrates and rewards complaining, what is the downside to engaging in it? Well, here it is. It's, it's the opportunity cost that you're giving up, right? So we are, we are um, studies have shown that the average person uses about 7,000 words per day. So you use about 7,000 words per day, right? What do you use those words for? Like that's your, that's your currency. And, and let's be honest, right? Words are pretty much our witness right now, even generally speaking. Because when you even show compassion or empathy or love to somebody, a lot of it will be through words. Like you can, you can hug them, of course, or you can give them something. And those things, of course, matter. They are part of it. But a lot of it is through words, just having a conversation. The words that you spend, what is the opportunity cost? What are you giving up? When you complain, like what else could you be doing instead of complaining when you complain? Well, it seems what Paul is saying is the opportunity cost of complaining is light. It is your ability to shine in the world against a culture that is in part defined by complaint, by by malcontent. Consider what an opportunity you have for making an eternal difference in someone's life simply by speaking a language that is different from the culture. By going through the day and instead of engaging in the temptation to complain, using your words to show gratitude and praise and rejoicing in something that is just other than what the world thinks. Seeking a different reward than maybe just a free meal or a discount or a coupon, a $5 credit. Saying, I live for a different kind of reward. One that is, you know, invaluable. One that is far greater than that little thing that I can get by engaging in this culture. So that's Paul's second point, rejecting complaint 
culture makes you a light. And here's the third point. Contentment in Christ is the cure. Contentment in Christ is the cure to complaint culture. And he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why disputing? What does disputing even mean? Now, the word here in Greek is simply, it could be translated either reasoning or thoughts. So do all things without grumbling or thoughts, which kind of seems like it doesn't make sense. Do all things without grumbling or reasoning. And it's translating disputing because the force of the first word is put on the second word. So what he is saying is really, how do those fit together, grumbling or, or thoughts? Kind of, it's, the idea is that the disputing is happening against God. So it's not that you're disputing a person. It's not like arguing necessarily with a person. It's arguing with God because that's really what grumbling at the heart of it is, right? It's like, God, why are you doing this? Why is this happening? Like when you just say that out to the, to the universe, right? Like, oh, why is this happening to me? Or woe is me. Right? They messed up my order. Woe is me. Like, when you feel the need to have to say that, really, you're saying that to God. Right? God, why are, you, why are you letting this happen? I mean, those are the small things. But in the bigger things, God, why am I going through this? How do we beat, then, a grumbling heart, a complaining heart? Now, God, uh, now well, Paul gives us two examples here. The first is himself. He says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering. Now that, you know, he, and he uses this kind of terminology later in uh, 2 Timothy, which is the last, last letter that he writes, which is before his death. And he is, the, the, the idea is that he is, even if he is suffering, even if I'm suffering, Right? Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Even if I have to suffer, I'm not going to engage in this complaining kind of culture. And, and you know, you see that in him, right? You see that in him. Even though he's in prison, does he complain about being in prison? No. He says, wow, this has given me opportunity to advance the gospel. Even he says, if I am to die, if I'm to die, great, I get to be with Christ. Right? And he gives us insight into his mentality later on in this letter if you look at Philippians 4. Philippians 4.12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. What is it? When I can do all things, right? And this is, this is typically like a text that's used in a hermeneutics class. What does it mean, I can do all things? Does it mean he can fly? You know, does it mean he can jump off a roof or walk through traffic and he'll be fine? That's not the idea, right? The idea is I can endure all things. And if you were to take that in light of what Paul is saying in our passage, I can do all things without grumbling through Christ. I can do all things without complaining about it. Because I have contentment in Christ. 
Right again, Philippians 3, 7 to 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ. Nothing will take away grumbling. Nothing will take away complaint in your heart as as a response, like saying to every loss that comes, I have Jesus and he's worth everything to me. Like nothing is going to remove complaint from your heart like saying, I have Jesus and Jesus is way more valuable than anything I have lost. In fact, for Paul, like This whole letter is about conquering grumbling. It's about conquering a heart of discontent by having an ultimate reward in Jesus. Now, of course, Paul has already given an example of this that is in Christ himself that we saw earlier in Philippians 2. But we'll look at another passage, 1 Peter 2. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is actually written to slaves at the time. And he's saying you should endure your suffering even under an unjust master to follow in the steps of Christ. And in verse 22 it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't complain. He didn't revile. He didn't talk back. He didn't threaten. Contentment in Christ is the cure to complaint culture. Now, let's be clear. Paul isn't saying, hey, don't complain. Like, be really self-controlled. Be cognizant of every word that comes out of your mouth so that you can control every complaint. Now, I think it's good to be cognizant, and it's good to try to to, to limit the complaints that actually come out of your mouth. But that's not Paul's ultimate kind of point, right? It's not Paul's ultimate solution, Nor is it to suppress your emotions or to just like be stoic to such a degree that you're dead inside and you've lowered all your expectations so that you just won't complain because you have no expectations. Like that's not, you know, preemptively dash all your hopes so that you won't complain about it. That's not, of course, what Paul's advocating because we see Paul lives a life full of joy. He's saying, rejoice with me. Right? The solution is to have your faith and your hope in such a greater joy. It's to live a life that is so fully content in the joy of knowing and having and embracing Christ that no matter what happens externally, you don't have to complain because internally you are so satisfied. He says, I truly rejoice even though from the outside conventional wisdom says I should be complaining. 
Paul feels completely confident in the joy and the hope that Christ provides. See, the reason we complain, it's not a boss issue. It's not a parent issue, an employment issue, a money issue, a resources issue, a church issue, a community issue. It's not those things. It's a heart issue. The deeper problem is not the complaints that come out of your mouth. It's the reason that you feel compelled to shoot those complaints out of your mouth. And Paul's solution is find your contentment in Christ. Now he gives us another practical application here. Hold fast the word of life. And I'll say, I'll say in closing, that is the application. Okay, hold fast the word of life. You know when those Israelites, when somebody starts saying like, Moses, did you bring us out here to just die in the wilderness? You know what's kind of, like, like what happened? How did that happen? Their eyes, how did their eyes become so narrowly focused on the problems before them that they failed to see the potential power of God in light of the history of miracles in their wake? Can you imagine if just one person, like somebody's like, Moses, did you bring us out here to die, right? Like, God, we had it better back then in slavery. Like if somebody just said, dude, did you, just, did you see what God just did? He just delivered us from slavery, the most powerful kingdom on earth. God just, God just punked them. Right? All their magicians came out. They're trying to do this stuff. And God's just like, boom, boom, boom. Right? Let me just turn your river. You have a God of the river, right? Let me just turn this into blood real quick. Right? You have a God of, like, locusts, right? Let me just, locusts, flies, right? Hail and fire, complete darkness. The angel of death comes and kills every firstborn who doesn't have their doorpost painted with the blood of the lamb. That just happened. Parting the Red Sea. And then God delivers manna from heaven miraculously. Every single day he provides bread of life. Every single day. And yet they say, what about water? And then he gives water. And then they say, what about meat? I'm sick of this. And then he gives meat. And then he says, here's the promised land. It's flowing with milk and honey. And they say, oh, but challenges. There's challenges there. I wish, you know, I mean, if just somebody said, look what he's done. Look what he's already done for us. I think he can handle the weather. I think he can handle the fires. I think he can handle the streets. I think he can handle the rent. I think he can handle putting food on the table. I think he can handle coronavirus and your boss and your mother-in-law. I think he can handle those things, the day-to-day. If we refuse to fall into the habitual complaining and grumbling of the crooked and twisted generation and instead set our hearts to trust in him. Church, hold fast the word of life every day. You know I'm going to beat that drum every week. Hold fast the word of life every day. And as you do so, I'll also just give you these five questions, okay, to ask yourself. One, 
is God good? Two, will God do what he promised? Three, is God in control? Four, does God have the necessary power? And five, does God care about me? If you hold fast the word of life and you take those questions to God in light of the gospel, you will discover not only the truth of the yes of all of these statements, but you will find the power of the faith in that yes as you walk in them every day. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you are gracious that you are loving, that you are merciful to confront us in our complaining. God, that you are kind enough to reveal to us that these things are not a matter of circumstance, God. They are not a matter of what is happening in our lives, but they are a matter of what is happening in our hearts Direct us graciously, God, toward yourself, toward the glory of you, to remember what you have done in the history of your people, to remember what you have done in the history of the world, to remember what you have done in the history of our lives, God. For those of us who know you, I know there is a history, there is a wake of miraculous work that you have done in us of providence, of gracious love, of compassion, of power. And I pray, God, that the problems that lie before us would not in our minds ever become greater than the power that we have already witnessed. Awaken us to the potential of what you can do through your people when we simply open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to trust in you, to rejoice in you, and to hope in you. We ask God, would you give us that power? We thank you. We know that you hear us and that you will. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.